Welcome to the Great Bays Tennis Podcast. I'm Steve Smith. Episode 125, 125. That's the number of clay court matches that Chris Everett won in a row. We'll have to have our fact checker check that. Delighted to have Andrew Rube be our guest. He's the head men's tennis coach at Harvard. Delightful personality, amazing background. And it'll be fun to talk to him about his story from just like everyone starting from the beginning, how he got connected with a great game of tennis, his day-to-day and everything in between. I've done some homework, so I've got lots of questions to ask him. Let me get him on the phone. That might be my fastest telephone call on these podcasts so far. Improvement. Hey, Steve. Andrew Rube, thank you so much for being our guest. Great to have you with us. Yeah. Uh, my pleasure. We uh, usually start with uh, what type of baby food did you eat? No, I'm just teasing because uh, we, <laughs> we do have some lengthy conversations. But I've done some homework. Born in Washington, okay. born in Washington D.C., and you moved to Cleveland. Tell us uh, your beginning days in tennis. How did you get the passion going to where you are today? Uh, great question. I, I'd love to talk about how I got started. I think uh, I was I was born in D.C. We moved when I was four, actually, to Westchester in New York, uh, where I, I did a stint for about six, seven years, where I really started to you know get into the game. And then we moved to Cleveland. So there was a, an intermediary step in there. But... Um, I was very lucky. I mean, my dad was is from Oklahoma, and in college, he, he went to Texas and you know near Austin, uh, and he fell in love with the game, and and he passed that on to us. I think with we, uh, my brother and I, um, you know, started having a racket in our hand as soon as we were born, and I think he was always hoping to get some hitting partners uh, and have somebody to hit with on the weekends. And that's sort of how it started. It was very organic. Uh, we went to the local park and, uh, I, you know, he sawed off a wooden racket for us and, and we were, you know, swinging away at a very, very early age, but it was always very fun and was, was really just recreational. And I guess, you know, at those clinics, one of the pros said, Oh, these kids are pretty good. You should, you know, sort of move them up the food chain and pass this on. Um, we were uh, at a club there in Bronxville that had a wonderful coach uh, who was a former Brazilian Davis Cup player named Jamie Di Carvalho, um, who was just the, the perfect uh, introductory coach for us. He was so supportive and, and uh, you know, knowledgeable and gave us some good foundation. So, you know, uh, we're always very blessed uh, if we can get some good help early on. And I've been really lucky to have been passed on to some some wonderful coaches that made a huge impact. So I really started there and it was, you know, uh, in, in that fashion. And then I moved to Cleveland at about 10 or 11 and also was lucky to be connected with, uh, Dr. Arun Jetley. Arun was my coach, um, all through, you know, juniors and, and in college and even on the pro tour, uh, and, you know, just had an immense impact on my life. As you know, those relationships with the coaches, uh, is just, you know, especially your junior coach is, is, is so uh, deep and important and, um, yeah, vital. And so uh, Arun was a disciple of Harry Hopman and really gave me, uh, you know, sort of extended the knowledge I already had on the game and helped me, um, you know, grow as I 
became a top junior player and then a college player and beyond. I, I just think, uh, yeah, we had an amazing sort of dynamic setup around there because there was, in addition to some older mentors of, my, you know, um, junior players that were three, four years older than I was that, that were really helped pull me along and mentor me. Uh, I think that was crucial. You sort of have to have a critical mass of competitive, you know, nutrients around you to, 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 to grow into a healthy player. And we were really lucky that way. Um, and, you know, I felt like I could get everything I needed in Cleveland. Um, so that was huge. There was also a whole layer of college, uh, post-college players, former college players in the area that also helped me. Um, and, and when I sort of ran out of some junior competition, they were there for me. So, um, you know, that's a little bit of the journey. I, I you know, for my junior career, um, what else might be interesting? Well, the Cleveland Racquet Club, uh, that facility, I was fortunate. Mark Leisman, who was one of those older college players, he played at Northwestern. I'm sure you knocked a lot of balls around with him and some of yep. his contemporaries. Tell us a little bit about that that facility. I was just there in the wintertime, but you have clay, and they did a number of things for doubles for years in the summer, right? Yeah, no, it was, it, it, we were, just, again, very fortunate. It's, it's a, uh, I mean, it's, it attracts all the best players uh, around there. And so there was a whole slew of former college players um, that, that like Mark, that really helped me. There was Kevin Shaw, who formerly played at Harvard. Uh, there was Tom Lucci, who was a just spectacular age group player all the way up probably through the 70s. He, he was, uh, you know, always pushing me, getting me, you know, to improve my game. And, and you know, it wouldn't have been possible without that. Uh, Tom Colton, um somebody who, who was also, you know, star player, still playing uh, age group tournaments and ITFs all across the world. He, he, he was a big uh, influence on me as well. So, you know, that it was more like a, basically like a European club, you know, where you could go and play and there's top level competition there. It's not like a country club where there's, you know, there's the tennis is very recreational and tennis comes first. And so that's, it was, uh, yeah, very. I mean, I, I probably could. I mean, I could ride my bike there in five minutes from my house. So it was just huge to have that sort of access and competition. And certainly for me, learning doubles, um, there's nothing more important than playing with older men. Um, you know, as I was, you know, starting at probably 12 and 13, I was playing in their sort of adult leagues, and that was just yeah, huge. I mean, you just there's no way to, you know, accelerate your growth than playing with adults and playing in some of those men's leagues. So. It was uh, a perfect setup. When I was there, it was wintertime, so I didn't see um, the outdoor courts, but you had the best of playing on hard court in the winter and clay in the summer, right? Yeah, I, I probably did a, quite a bit of, of, of that. Um, so that's, a, you know, sort of like almost like a Scandinavian background where they play on, you know, faster indoor courts and then play on some clay in the summer. And um, I definitely benefited from that. And what about your brother? Um how many years between you? It certainly helps to have a practice, a built-in practice partner. Yeah. My brother's three years younger than, than I am. And uh, I have a sister as well who fizzled out from tennis um, early on, but um, uh, yeah, this is a tennis family. And uh, my brother went on to be captain of the Dartmouth tennis team. And um, he was uh, also just a great player, big forehand, big Western grip, flat forehand um, that he could rocket through the court. Um, you know, I probably could have used this forehand uh, at some points, but uh, he, he was a strong player. And uh, yeah, we were all really passionate about the game. And we had a really, you know, many ways, just really idyllic 
set set up and we with, with the rune and the academy we had this you know whole, i mean there was just you know dozens and dozens of players going on to play in college be captains of teams um and it was you know like uh you know, you just couldn't, you just couldn't wait to get out to the courts and certainly, you know, doing all the school that we did, we, we practiced in the morning before school. A lot of times everyone would set up clinics and, you know, we'd be there at, I don't know, 530 in the morning and then maybe come back and hit again later in the afternoon. And then you're managing your schoolwork. So it was busy and we worked hard, but it never felt like uh, a sacrifice because, you know, it was fun. And, and I think that's, that was a key driver. When you played Andrew, um, did you play at the time, the era when high school tennis was still important? Did you play high school tennis? Well, you know, I would say, yeah, it's not like it is now where it's, you know, sort of just, you know, fall into new lows. But we did. We were we were also blessed that we had this very famous high school tennis team at university school uh, in Cleveland, which we, we traveled um, all over the country to play the best teams. Our coach was Jeff Morton, who... I mean, he's just a, uh, he, he was just a really forward thinking guy. He's been a, actually an official and uh, officiated uh, matches for years on the pro tour. And he just was sort of savvy. He was the head of the upper school at university school. And we, we traveled to Michigan to play Liggett and um, uh, Cranbrook. We went, you know, down to play schools in Columbus, Ohio. We went out um, to the East coast to play in Virginia. We played, the JV teams at, uh, you know, Annapolis against the Naval Academy in Princeton and we played Lawrenceville. And so it was sort of like an all-star team. It's actually, frankly, the best team probably I've ever been on was my high school tennis team. I mean, we had, I mean, at one point our number six player ended up being the number one player at Michigan. So, I mean, it was like, you know, we were, he was young at the time as a freshman, but we, we had a stacked team and, uh, yeah, we would just we would just literally try to find the best teams in the country, and then you know he'd probably write, you know call them up and, and try to schedule a match, and so that was very unique, and it just doesn't uh, yeah. really exist anymore. No, that sounds so unusual. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, University Liggett and Gross Point. Um, Age wise, um, you're younger than Krigstein. Aaron Crickson. Yeah, he, he, we we played his. You're right, and he was like, you know, where you know where is he? And he's down in Florida, and he probably was already at that point, you know, winning ATP events. Um, but he's probably, I think, three years older than I am, three four. Um, but um, of course, his legacy. I mean, Malavia Washington was three years older or so than me. Todd Martin. So they were all in our what's now called the Midwest section. Originally, it was called the Western section, which seems a misnomer given that we're. Ohio, Michigan, and some of those, you know, Chicago. So, um, but yeah, that, that was sort of the era, you know, um, I guess Jim Courier and, you know, you know, all those guys, I mean, this was the heyday for American tennis and, uh, you know, they were just churning out one top 10 player after the next. Let me ask you this question. Uh, and I, re- I remember when the Midwest sectionals was called Westerns. And the discussion was why do so many really good players come out of the Midwest? Was it the appreciation of indoor court time, the um, respect of, or the understanding of Big Ten sports, the appreciation of indoor court time? Um, you know, why, why do you think that, you know, all these small cities, Dayton, Toledo, there's Milwaukee. And, and actually, if people have done some work and said that there were more players coming out of the Midwest before the advent, before the the heyday, the start of the tennis academy. What are your thoughts on tennis in the Midwest then versus now? 
Well, I mean, this is a, this is a great question. I mean, there was certainly a critical mass. I mean, it works like this for countries too, right? You get a critical mass of good players and then it sort of, you know, mentors and pulls along other players from those academies. And there were lots of very good coaches. I mean, certainly Brian Smith still there, uh, you know, in, um, you know, when in Carmel or whatever, and, and, his dad was a great coach and we had, you know, a ruins Academy in Cleveland. There was great coaches in Columbus, uh, you know, up in Michigan and, and Chicago, certainly. So there was these great little, you know, mini academies, essentially. Um, obviously now everything's become consolidated. Um, you know, so everybody's migrating to Florida and California and it's, it's, it's a, it's an exodus. And so, yeah, it's hard to get a critical mass now. It's hard to get court time. Um, you know, we're finding more and more kids are trying to travel and play during the school year and, and you know, sort of land-based, old, you know, schools, uh, physical schools are not as uh, willing to allow kids to play these sorts of tournaments that are sort of required or they think they're required to sort of get to the next level. And and so I, I think you see a hollowing out of the talent uh, and, and, and a sort of a migration to Florida, which you know, it's, it's concentrating now. That's the sort of competitive, rich environment. And um, I, I think that's got to have something to do with it. Um, I'm not, I haven't been my, you know, with my finger on the pulse of what's happening in the Midwest tennis these days, but that's kind of maybe seeing some larger trends that I, that I could put my finger on. No, I think a lot of times people are going nowhere fast. It's you know, running in circles, like who goes further, the who wins the race, the the rabbit or the turtle. I know right now there's been a lot of players visiting that are here to play the Orange Bowl quality. Yeah. They play one match and sometimes it's one and done. And if they had stayed local and if they, say even just the indoor, indoor nationals, uh, you end up playing more matches. Well, that's true. I mean, but you know, you can always, how you put your schedule together, you have options and you can play, you know, different types of, you know, local money tournaments or UTR tournaments or, I mean, there are different ways to stitch it together. And, and yeah, I mean, you know, that's a whole larger debate on ITF and traveling to get points. And, you know, so there, there, there are, um, you know, you got to sort of figure out your level, I think, certainly, and try to find, make it targeted and, and, and uh, you know, to, to what you and your coach have a plan for. Uh, I know uh, your predecessor at Harvard, Dave Fish, uh, he talks about tennis in St. Louis. I love the story of Bill Price. Or he would, you know, that was back when many coaches just worked. It was just a hobby. And he would go to the little league baseball games. It, was, it wasn't really fair for, for girls at that time. Um, you know, if he played sports, you were, if you loved sports as a girl, you called a tomboy. But, you know, what he did with um, many players is he'd pick out whoever the shortstop was or someone was really talented and he'd meet with the parents and say, well, if you buy a ping pong table and you play ping pong with these grips, and then you come and you watch me um, teach on the weekends. Then a year later, I'll teach you for free. And probably the most famous story is that of Chuck McKinley, who won Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, St. Louis. So, you know, I do think that um, players create players. So like what you're talking about, with your, right. your high school setting, um, you know, you look to your left, you look to your right, it's almost osmosis. Yes. Um, I just, well, but, and, go ahead. Can we give me some more names? I mean, uh, that St. Louis tennis scene. I mean, that that was sort of a problem. I mean, obviously there's Chuck and now also Bobby McKinley and and, and Jimmy Connors came out of St. Louis and 
Um, you know, I, I think Arthur Ashe moved to St. Louis, as I remember. Uh, that's right. Yeah, but, the, the gentleman who yeah. ran the who ran the tournament in uh, Miami for a long time, Buck Holtz. Um, yeah. With uh, there's a famous story about. Um, actually, I want to go back and you mentioned Brian Smith. I'll tell a quick story about Brian Smith, but um, Jimmy Connors got beat by um, Bobby McKinley. Bobby just hit drop shots and lobs, and Steve Denton tells a story. That's where Jimmy came up with the sky hook. But Gloria went up to um, Bobby McKinley and she used to, like Jimmy did, take the index finger and just point and she said, you will never beat my son that way again. So they went home and went to practice. But uh, you mentioned uh, Brian Smith in, in Indianapolis, Carmel. It just yeah. wor- worked out that one of my students was being uh, recruited by Jeremy Wurtzman and another student was playing a junior tournament that was in that area. So... I like to visit tennis school, so we went or academy, so we went by Brian's place, and and there was this big uh, the, the the Lincolns from like a, it was like a nineteen eighty Lincoln automobile, it was like right. as big as boat, as big as a boat, a yacht, and uh, these these two tennis players were pushing it, and this nice lady came by and said, "I have AAA, I could help you out." And uh, one of the guys looked up who was pushing. He said, this is fitness. And they, <laughs> they were pushing that. Uh, I was, you know, I've been told many things. At one time, those guys practiced in the morning in an old uh, Home Depot. Hungry, hungry dog yeah. is best. But I've done some homework. So you've re- recruited by UCLA and other top schools. How did you choose Harvard? Well, actually, you know, yeah, I, I had four schools that I was, I was a good student and a good player and, and, and sort of looking to find a marriage of both and um, went on four recruiting trips and, and just fell in love with Harvard, honestly. I, I'm uh, Paul Torricelli was the coach at Northwestern and we're still friends to this day. I mean, you know, they had Todd Martin recently on the team. They had Steve Hurtowiz. They had a great teams there and that was a you know strong interest of mine. I went looked at Notre Dame with Bobby Bayless, the famous coach uh, up in there. Came from the Naval Academy, and um, that was a great option. And and at the time, um, you know, I also looked at UCLA. Went out west um, to take a look, um, you know, what was happening out there too, and and just sort of seeing what was the feel. And honestly, for me, it was the, the, the Harvard team was very strong, um, and you know, they're a top fifteen program, and we had geez, three All-Americans on the team my freshman year. And so I knew that the level would be high enough that I could continue to improve and, and, and keep my dreams of playing pro alive. Um, but it was also the school and the opportunity to be surrounded by other people that had passion and, and really had, um, yeah, were willing to sacrifice for a journey, something that they were engaged in. I felt it really energized me and um, kind of spoke to, you know, what I was interested in my background and, it was a great fit. I mean, really, it was one of those things you just, after five minutes, you're like, yeah, this is my home. So I, it was, that's kind of how I picked it. I love Dave. Dave was also part of that decision to come to Harvard. He's just a, uh, he, he was just, uh, obviously, as a mentor to me, and we've had a, just a extremely long friendship because I played for him and then worked with him. But uh, at the time, when I was looking at schools, um, you know, Dave was a real student of the game. He's a learner. Um he, he, he really sort of uh, helped us to sort of gain a, a mastery over the game and, and had a, you know, I think a really good feel for how to build the skills that could help you on the, on the next level at the pro tour. And, and uh, we had an assistant coach, Greg Russell from the famous Russell Jamaican 
tennis family. Greg was, uh, you know, just just an awesome person and and a, and a great coach and mentor to me as well. And so that was a perfect one-two combination, I would think. And and then that then to have the school behind you and, um, you know, the great opportunity that Harvard is is it was just kind of a no-brainer. But um, yeah, I mean, we could certainly talk about Dave for a long time as somebody who you know, you've gotten to know through the years and, and work with a lot too. No, I have down, he's a coach for 42 or 42 years at Harvard, but I also know you went to Exeter. So you can add another, I think he was there three years. That's what an amazing place Exeter is with, I met Dave Fish. He, you guys with good hair, um, you look so much younger than you are both you and Dave Fish, but he came out to the Vic Braden tennis college. I'm going to guess it was it Don Usher, Don Unger. Yeah. Don Usher. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, so I, I was there, they met with Vic in the afternoon, but I was their go-to guy during the morning. And then I, uh, for, I was there for five years at Harvard. I used to tease people and say I spoke during commencement because I was there to help the tennis camp staff <laughs> Right. with, um, but yeah, I've got my notes here that Dave Fish, uh, there's like a short clip on YouTube where you're putting the hall of fame, um, Andrew Rube, driven to hang in with the best players in the country, had guts and class, great mix. He's a natural-born teacher, wonderfully enthusiastic. Um, but before Dave Fish, and we can talk more about Dave, but Jack Barnaby, I remember reading his books and using his books, training tennis teachers. And I was fortunate enough to um, listen to him lecture, and I, I read this from one of your articles where it's a great quote from Barnaby. Coaching junior tennis players is putting old heads on young shoulders. Um, did you get a chance to spend a lot of time with Jack Barnaby? I, you know, I, I met him briefly once, um, and and I've spoken to his uh, wife, um, but I, I did not know Jack, and he, he he had sort of I think retired, you know, you know, many many years ago, and I did not get to know him, but I knew him through the stories from Dave, and and Dave would give us these you know incredible stories, I guess. He, uh, you know, Jack Barnum was pretty loquacious and it was, you know, obviously like to talk and tell stories. And so Dave would sort of, he has a great memory, would pass along these tales. And, um, you know, so that sort of, there's a, like a little institutional knowledge of the living history of Harvard tennis, knowing that, yeah, I mean, I think since 1930, this is, I'm the fourth coach. And so, because Jack Barnaby taught for, I don't know, probably 40 years as well. And Dave taught for 42 years. And so, you know, that there, there is that. <laughs> they've left their imprint all over our program, which is, which is pretty cool. And, and that they were both leaders, um, uh, you know, in tennis. I mean, Jack, you know, was writing books and coaching coaches and Dave did the same thing as, as, as a uh, mentor to so many people uh, in the tennis industry and helping to start UTR and, um, you know, has a huge legacy in the game and it, it's pretty cool to follow in their footsteps. I mean, you know, that's not something, <laughs> it's not a, like whatever falling, you know, Saban in Alabama. It's not a great, <laughs> never want to be following them, but you know, we're, we're, we're giving our best and, and enjoying that and, and uh, you know, try to carry on that tradition. I mean, you know, Harvard tennis is, it's, it's got an amazing tradition helping to start the Davis cup. The first Davis cup team was basically all Harvard players. The Harvard lawn tennis association was founded a year before the, the U S lawn tennis association. Um, and then, you know, they sort of helped get this started. So, there is a great history in the game here, and uh, you know we're certainly proud of it. Uh, Jack Barnaby, uh, before Bill Tim, he was considered the voice of the USPTA. So I know he, 
outside of Harvard, beyond Harvard, he definitely contributed to tennis nationwide. Um, yeah. With, uh, I know you're a very humble guy, but let me uh, pump your tires here a little bit. Uh, he had a standout career at Harvard. First team All-Ivy, 93-95. First team All-Ivy, singles and doubles, 93-95. Three Ivy League championships. Uh, senior player of the year. Team captain. Who were some of your teammates when you were at Harvard? Yeah, we had, oh, geez, I mean, my my first year, we, we had um, a star-studded cast of seniors, this amazing senior class. Uh, there was Albert Chang, who was at 100, around 140 ATP, played Davis Cup for um, Canada. He, he got to the semifinals of a challenger before his senior year. I mean, he was, he was a hell of a player. Mike Zimmerman, uh, who was you know multiple-time All-American, one of the smartest players probably ever in Harvard tennis. Um, just was a dogged competitor. And, and, you know, I do, again, I was just fell into these circumstances where I was mentored by really good players ahead of me, which is, which you have to have. Right. And, and so that was really a blessing. We had Mike Sheehan on the team, also an all American. We had Derek Brown on the team who, these are all from the same class and they're just, it was just like a superstar class. And then as I got older and sort of when they left, I sort of took up the mantle and, you know, moved up towards the top of the lineup and, had all sorts of great people join our team, you know, uh, from uh, Tom Blake. So James's older brother, Tommy, was on our team and uh, with his you know, amazing serve and great game and great personality. We had, um, uh, you know, Todd Maringoff, um, who, you know, probably got the 500 ATP and was a great player, Mitty Arnold, um, and, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, the list um, goes on. Phil Sang from... from uh, so Cal was on our team. He was part of the Junior Davis Cup team. Is a you know probably like a laser backhand. So we you know we had a really good team. We we and we, again we competed like we do now with all the best teams in the country. And it's always sort of fun when they sort of have this sort of image of what Harvard teams are going to be like. And and we were you know pretty pretty tough tough I, crew. And it was fun. As a freshman, did, were you uh, fortunate enough to be a regular in the lineup? I know I I played six like first year and yeah and, and you know which is a big deal because you want to get that experience that first year and, and was lucky enough to do that and I also played doubles I played number two doubles my double skills were probably ahead of my single skills and uh so and we you know we did very well with the NCAs and doubles with my partner Albert Chang and we were you know one of the better teams in the country so it was you know that was a great way to start and build confidence and then you know my sophomore year they graduated and I sort of moved up to the top and you know, had a different role, uh, uh, you know, when you're, when you're near the top of the lineup. So that was, you know, my trajectory in college, which was fun. And my, you know, my junior year, I got an injury with my shoulder and my, my knee. And so I was out for a whole year and, and that really, that really slowed my progress. I would say, you know, my sophomore year, I played the NCAA tournament, one of my first round against the top player from Pepperdine and then lost to Chris Woodruff, who <laughs> beat me in straight. So I ended up winning the tournament and did pretty well. Yeah. And so my junior year was sort of a wash and, and my senior year, honestly, I was just getting back my level. I did. I felt like as soon as I graduated, you know, I had a year of tennis underneath me. I was playing much better, but, um, so it was a little interruption in my progression there, but, uh, yeah, I loved it. Yeah. Chris, Chris Whitford, he did really well in the tour. Um, coaches, Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, how about John yeah. Doran from Ireland? Was he a teammate or is he a little bit? after? No, you? no. John's younger than I am. And John, uh, yeah, I just, saw John when I was at Wimbledon. We stayed at his house there in Wimbledon Village. And, uh, you know, it was a great Irish Davis Cupper. And 
big game, big serve, but I, we didn't overlap. Um, you know, there was a the small group of people that came after me. He was on the team when James Blake was on the team and James came after, you know, my time there. Um, but we, you know, obviously seen him because he'd come to some of the matches rooting on Tommy. So, um, yeah, that the, 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 there's been a lot of great players, you know, in our in our history. Uh, you know, we, we saw John Chu in 2005 get to the semifinals of singles and doubles at the NCAA tournament. Lost to Isner in the doubles, and then lost in three sets to Benedict Dorsch. Um, at in at, that was when they were playing in College um, Station there at at uh, Texas A&M. So, you know, he was just you know another another great Harvard tennis player. He was just inducted into the Harvard Athletics Hall of Fame. Um, uh, you know, a couple months ago. Um, I had a chance to work a little bit with John Doran and he talked about James Blake, actually Raven Klassen, one of our students played some doubles with yeah. Thomas Blake. Why don't you take a couple minutes and tell us what comes to your mind first, if you had to tell a James Blake story? Well, I mean, you know, I would say that because I didn't play with James that we, you know, we, we had seen him at the time and, you know, he was, when I saw him, when he was still in high school, I mean, he was small, he was thin, um, he had the one-handed backhand, and, and uh, you know, he sort of said, I don't know, you know, how, how, you know, who knows how good he could be. I would say we did practice together a few times, um, you know, either when I was coming off of the tour or whatever, but, um, yeah, he, his drive and his speed, um, his commitment to his game, he has an amazing coach, Brian Barker, um, who really just did a great job of developing a lot of confidence for James and trusting his, his identity as a player, which was, you know, a little more of a risk taker. Um, it really paid off for James, but, um, we, you know, at the time it was Tommy had a nickname. It was Tommy gun and, and James, we sort of teased him. We we called him squirt gun at the time because he was so small, which that was probably, (laughs) we probably did not enjoy that. Um, considering you know what his accomplishments are, but um, you know he, he, he you know he's a you know certainly a model teammate, gets the team aspect and and loved it, and built a wonderful community at Harvard that he carried with him on tour. Um, he's spoken quite eloquently about how he built a you know network of friends and community at Harvard that had supported him on his tour career because it's a lonely path and. He really leaned on that group, and he you know it was just amazing. We're all so proud of what kind of person he is, what an ambassador he is, what a spokesperson he is, and I mean, how good he was. I mean, jeepers. I mean, he's just the speed, the forehand, um, just electric to watch, and, and uh, you know, we always, you know, people say, well, can I come to Harvard and get good? I said, well, I don't know. You can get to four in the world. I mean, <laughs> you know, we, have, we haven't proven you can get in the top three yet, but I think you could do okay, you know, and, and, and you know, they just, his coach, Brian, just had a just just really a magic touch and, and, and understood that, you know, it's a, it's a process you develop. Um, and then when you're ready for the next level, you're ready. And, you know, he was one of the top one or two juniors. I think he lost in the finals at Kalamazoo in the 18s and uh, in as a junior. And then in college, he, he won like three of the four kind of grand slams of college tennis. He lost in the finals of the NCAA tournament. So he, he actually had a, little bit of disappointment there you know that kept motivating him and then of course he, he just took off and he got bigger and he could you know got able to hit over those one-handers and um yeah he was really true to his game I mean he just he, he, he attacked second serves he, he was a little more of a gambler in that sense and he wasn't there to just have long rallies he didn't give people a lot of tempo and a lot of um 
you know, uh, uh, you know, feel so that he could keep them disrupted. And, um, you know, you, you never knew what was coming with that forehand of his. I mean, gee, that was just, uh, it was awesome. Yeah, I don't know if I read this in James Blake's autobiography. Maybe Dave Fish told me, because I, I love to ask um, coaches about other coaches. So from a learning standpoint, I've never met Brian Barker, but Dave Fish certainly told me, and so have others, so many great things about him. But I'll, I'll come back to a Brian Barker story. But uh, here's something that comes to mind with James Blake. So I'm driving a minivan. We've got two minivans. I'm driving one, and... Colin Lee from England, who taught tennis forever in Connecticut, taught with at the same club as James's mother. And this is back when um, kids all were wearing they had a Walkman. I guess that's what it was called. And you know, so right. so Colin Lee's telling all these stories about the Blake brothers growing up. And I look in my rearview mirror, and nobody's listening. I'm just going, and, and you know, he, he's got a couple years older than I am, and all this experience, but. If, and I'm always, again, telling the kids, read autobiographies. Uh, right. I mean, get a library card. But Brian Barker, um, and James says in his book that he was a brat and, and wasn't listening to anybody And when he was like 13 years old. And, and Vlander happened to be right there. Mads Vlander and Brian Barker became good friends with him. And, and he, the deal was is if James really behaved himself Monday through Saturday, that he'd get to hit with a former number one player in the world. And he said that really, really helped him out. Yeah. And Brian, Brian is a coach of the whole person. I think that's, you know, Brian, he's mentored a lot of people in tennis. And I think he's, his story is not as well told as it should be, frankly. Um, he, 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 there's a whole group of us as coaches that lean on Brian and call him up and ask him for, for advice even today. Um, I think he just understands the, the, the personal psychology of young people and how to connect with them and how to frame things in a way um, that's non-threatening and, and empowering for young people. And um, I, yeah, I think he just really he finds a way to trust them. And, and, and then, but you know, he, he, he holds people accountable too. And, and, and that's a tough thing to do without coming off as, you know, like a taskmaster. And uh, so he's really like a, tennis coach whisperer, you know, and I, I just think, um, yeah, more coaches <laughs> should learn from Brian about how to do it. I certainly think today even, even more so. Um, so yeah, maybe that's another podcast guest for you there. One thing with Brian, uh, I was told that he would never tell someone, Oh, you can't beat this player because they're too steady. I, I, I really don't like when I, I hear it all the time, the, Oh, you're playing a pusher. You know, I'll beat them at their own game. They're not a pusher; they're a defensive specialist. But he would never right. tell, he would never tell his player that. Oh, well, you're not steady enough. You you have to play. You know, have to play this way because you know they're better. They're a better pusher than you are. This, you know, I, I tease people. They ask me what I do. I say I fight ignorance every day. But I, I was told right. that. But he would never tell someone. You know, this person's better at you than that. And you just it was very very uh, insightful in how he would deal with. Uh, the tennis mind. Yeah. Language is really important as coaches, as you know, and how you want to frame things is, is vital. I think he also knows how to take pressure off young people who keep a ton of pressure on themselves these days and, and how to, you know, help them have a sp space to be play free and, and to, to go after their game, which I think is also hard. You know, we all, I, what if I lose, you know, these sort of thoughts we all have and, and, you have to sort of work your way out of, and he's really good at giving people a pathway to, to, to play with a little more freedom. And uh, I think that's, you know, that's what good coaches do. 
Andrew, let's uh, move on to, I read where you called it your next degree, where you were on the tour for four years. Um, why don't you mm-hmm. expound upon that a little bit? Well, again, I mean, I graduated and desperately wanted to play uh, pro tennis. I, you know, never left the country. You know, when I graduated Harvard, I <laughs> only played domestically and sort of used all our vacation and summer times to just play and compete. And I was just raring to go. So for me, it was like, great. And then going back to, hearkening back to my Cleveland Racket Club group, I mean, they had a bunch of the members there helped sponsor me and get me started and gave me some seed money to get, get my, you know, tennis dream started. And it was, you know, I'm forever grateful. Um, and you need that kind of support, you know, to have a chance uh, to do it. And I traveled all over and, um, you know, couldn't get enough of it. So it was kind of like a, you know, chance to travel, to play, compete. And I, I mean, I took it very seriously. I didn't have the funds to have a coach traveling with me much of the time. And, so you're sort of, you know, kind of doing it yourself. Uh, it was certainly a journeyman existence. And we, I played originally some of the first satellites because it was still satellites going on when you have to play three weeks and then the, the fourth of the Masters uh, to get your points and, and then started transitioning to some futures and then eventually, you know, some challengers, you know, a few ATP events. But I don't know. I mean, I, for me, it, it was just, uh, uh, you know, just an eye opener to play all over Africa, to play in Europe and, and, and to play in Asia. And, and, uh, you know, all of it was just like a, like a higher degree, you know, it really was, um, how you learn the game. You just have to commit yourself 24 seven to that tennis. And that's how you get better. And it's, it's a pressure cooker for sure, but it's, it's also, I mean, the improvement I saw over you know a couple of years was was really pretty dramatic because I could really just completely focus on my tennis and um, you know just you learn from your fellow competitors. There's a lot of collegiality and camaraderie there because um, you're sort of all in it together when you're there for you know four weeks in the Philippines or playing tournaments and you know you know we we played a couple of satellites in, in, in satellite in South Africa. I mean, just had just just really uh, lifelong uh, memories from those sorts of times. And as a player, I was, you know, progressing. I, I, I had a serve and volley game. I served volley in the first and second serve. I, I chip charged. And, you know, it was a, it was, as things were moving out of that phase, you know, the wood, I played as a, with the wood racket uh, until I was about 10. So I, I do have a connection with that era. And, and frankly, my game is, Michael Joyce once said, I was playing doubles with him at a tournament, he, he turned to me and said, you know, Rube, you would have been great in the wood racket era. And as soon as he said that, I mean, it was sort of a put down, but he was actually right. I mean, my game was probably, I would have been a better player, singles player for sure, in, in the wood racket era, given my grips and, and, and the way I, I approached the game. Um, certainly didn't have a big enough serve like a Taylor Dent to make a certain volley game work at the top, top level. I felt like my volleys were amongst the best. Uh, certainly, uh, I thought, you know, and, and uh, could compare favorably with, with, with most of the guys on tour. I, I was really confident in my volleys, but, you know, I, I didn't have the athleticism of a Pat Rafter. So, you know, I, you know that's, that was sort of some of the limitations I think I had. And I made the most of what I did. And, you know, again, it was, I was, you know, that was, it was still then, it was, uh, you know, that time certain volley tennis was still slowly dying out i mean obviously the courts and the and the uh strings and and all of that have, have, have really 
hampered it, although certainly the importance of the volley hasn't gone away, but um, that style, um, it's, it's harder to pull off. But um, yeah, then I, I, I was, you know, journeyman through the, through the ranks and got a chance to play Wimbledon in, in 1997 in doubles. We qualified with, uh, I played with Robbie Koenig, the announcer, um, TV announcer has been doing it for a long time now, mostly in Europe, but um, Robbie and I won three qualifying matches at Roehampton to get into the main draw and then played, uh, the, I think it was, it was one of the seeds was Trevor Croneman and David McPherson who, you know, both, um, you know, stars of the game and, and, and we lost in the first round, but, um, certainly one of my, you know, when I ever, I tell people about my experiences, I would say I was a good minor league player who got a cup of coffee in the major leagues, uh, at a few events and, and, uh, loved getting a chance to sort of get a window into what that looked like. Um, because it was very different than the, uh, you know, playing, a you know, uh, you know, we were playing in a small town in the south of France, um, you know, compared to playing uh, at Wimbledon, for sure. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had on Julian Krinsky, who also played Wimbledon, and I I love Bud Collins. Bud Collins said there's two types of tennis players, those who play Wimbledon and those who don't. Um, <laughs> but you, you certainly met Bud Collins over the years, the colorful commentator, the late, great Bud Collins. Tell us about Bud Collins. Well, actually, I mean, Bud's from Boston, and, or not originally from Boston. He's actually from he, Cleveland, he, he, originally. Then he, but, he, yeah, but he moved to Boston he, as a young writer and fell in love with it. Yeah, I think he went to Baldwin-Wallace College, which is right, you know, very near where I lived in Cleveland, and then came came to Boston. And uh, so he's sort of an institution, certainly, uh, and, and in the Boston tennis community, New England tennis community, um, or around the, you know, around the globe, too. I mean, he, he was beloved. Um, he interviewed me my senior year of college. He came to watch one of the matches at Harvard and wrote a piece about me in the, in the Boston Globe and, and you know, made some passing reference to, uh, it was nice to see a chip forehand because I would, on the second serve, I often just stuck with my continental grip and, and chipped both the forehand and backhand and came in and he, he thought that was <laughs> a nice thing of the past but it was he, he, he that was one of the things he highlighted in that article and so he interviewed me then and then when I played Wimbledon uh in 97 it was one of those weird years where it rained the entire week and uh of the main draw uh and we didn't actually play but Robbie and I played our first match on the middle Sunday in 1997 which was one of the few times they ever played on the middle Sunday until they've made that change this past year uh, only because it rained. And so there was just kind of a washout and Bud was looking for articles to write. I, you know, seen them, I said, hello. And on one of those days where there was nothing to write about, he pulled me into the Wimbledon press office and, and interviewed me. And, um, and, it, you know, sort of talked about some of my, you know, experiences in the minor leagues and, and sort of, you know, all the little tricks of the trade to, you know, save money on a meal or whatever, you know, we, I guess, a joke, but I was gone. Uh, somebody tipped me off that you could enter Shakespeare's house in Stratford upon Avon. If you enter the museum and from the exit, there's nobody there watching the door, and you could get in for free. So you know, we we had <laughs> little stories and vignettes from from my travels, and and he documented that and put a great article together in the Globe um, years ago. I was talking about you know teasing me about my last name Rube, which you know like he, something about a Rube at Wimbledon, um, playing with the the sort of uh, you know, other meaning of Rube uh, as, as sort of a, you know, country person. Um, so, 
yeah, he, he, and then, you know, to stay in Boston and, and to get to know his uh, wife, Anita, a little bit. And, and also he was a staple at Longwood at the, at the cricket club playing in bare feet on, on grass. And he was just a really good storyteller. He loved finding and, and highlighting people and telling their stories. I think it was that human element of him that was really compelling. Um, you know, I don't think he was an X's and O's guy, but it, it, in sort of the tennis, you know, world, but he, he knew people and knew stories and he was there to help them tell their story on a bigger stage. And we, you know, it was really loved getting to know Bud. Yeah. I can remember when Bud did TV, uh, not just, uh, the color commentary, but he was actually in the booth with, with Donald Dell going back in the, in the seventies. At one point, the, every Monday night, there was a final on TV during the summer. It was, it was fantastic. Um, college tennis players have so much support. What was it like? I mean, it's great that you had um, some people from the Cleveland Racquet Club help you with financial support. But when you're out there on the on your own, you got to get visas to go from one country to the next. And tell us a little bit about that. It's much more difficult well, to I mean, be a, a touring pro than than how your your players are catered to in college. Although I know at Harvard, under Dave Fish, you had to string your own rackets. Well, we did. I did when I was in college. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, you quickly learn that you have to be, you know, your own best advocate and you have to take charge of the learning process and you have to become, you know, you know, take ownership of it and accountability. So, you know, I, I think good programs do that. I think you want to put the learning and the emphasis back on the students. Uh, we certainly try to do that in our program um, because when you do, you're right, you know, exactly right. When you step out on tour, you're, you're, unless you have the backing of your federation, you have lots of support or financial wherewithal to get that team around you. You have to sort of work to create it, whether that's, you know, videotaping your matches and having, you know, your coaches back home watch it, which people are doing now, or having the people that you're traveling with, you know, feed off, you know, exchange feeding drills. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's a challenge, certainly, you know, because you're, you're, there's financial stresses and, um, you know, it's also hard if you go out and, you know, play a challenger and you lose first round and you, you've got six days to, to, to sort of sit around that empty space is um, something that I think the players that keep moving up the levels get good at managing their time and, and, and making use of it. I think it can be really discouraging um, when your whole identity is with your tennis and, and you're not winning. You know, you could go, you know, on the top level, geez, you could lose six first rounds in a row and, and that's that could be, you know, you could still have a really good year if you, you know, win a couple of, you know, go, go further in a couple of events and you have to sort of steal yourself to that sort of, you know, feedback because in college or in juniors, you're winning, what was that? They say like, you know, 80, 90% of your matches, the top juniors and at college you're winning, you know, 70%. I mean, these are depending on the person, but you're not winning as much. And then on the pro tour, you're winning even less. And, and how do you uh, keep, keep yourself going and keep, steady uh and and sort of you know when you the peaks come up and you, you're doing really well it's sort of just you know stay level and when when you go have a trough uh not going too deep in there i mean i think that's that's probably the toughest part of managing this this experience i think and how do you put a group of people around you so that you have some community so you're not out there by yourself if you don't have the funds to travel with you so you know that's that's still still the challenge and um I, I love that learning experience because you, you, you have to, you know, you can't, you know, whatever you, you gotta try to solve those problems and you're, you know, traveling in Japan and you can't read this, 
the you know the subway signs and your how do you get a meal and you can't read the menu and you know those are great experiences for people to grow up um i think you know those are those are those are life lessons that um also i think you know indirectly help your tennis because you 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 just sort of you mature now i've heard this said about we americans that uh some of us think if we've been to Europe uh, one time, we're well-traveled. Right. With, uh, so you're four years on the tour. I, you went back to Harvard, got a master's in religion and literature, correct? Yes. But before, yeah. before, he, before you returned, was it just financial attrition? What was, why, why did you stop? Why, why did you not keep going? I love how you, know, you hung in there until you played Wimbledon. <clears throat> I like to remember well, I actually played Wimbledon sort of in the middle of my career, and then I I, I stopped in '99. In um, a couple of years later, you know, I wasn't progressing the same way. I solved in singles around 370 or something ACP or somewhere top 400, and I really wasn't. There was no, there was not a lot of a path forward for me there. Um, I did very well in doubles, and 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 I was. I don't know. I think there were some choices there that I made. I certainly, I, I, I wasn't, I didn't solely focus on doubles. Of course, that means you're playing different tournaments. I could play higher level, but I couldn't play my singles. And I think there was, you know, there were some choices I made that, that after a couple of years, if you're not progressing up the levels and really getting a chance to play at the challengers and then the ATP events more regularly, I mean, it's hard to keep it going financially and, and then just, you know, it's not as rewarding if you're not improving and not sort of seeing that. I mean, certainly in doubles, um, you know, that, like, you know, there could have been a pathway maybe, you know, if I sort of gave some advice to young people, sort of a, if I was giving advice to myself now, I probably would have early on focused on doubles. I think I won, I played, you know, three satellites right out of the gate and I won 10 of the 12 tournaments. I mean, you know, and, and I was really confident in my doubles, but, I always thought, you know, you try to do both. And, and that might've been, if I, you know, look back and when something I would have probably done a little bit differently, but um, yeah, by four years out there and, you know, you can only, if you're not playing those bigger tournaments and, and getting that, it, it's hard to keep going. I think it wears you down. And I had other things and other interests that I was excited about. I mean, I think tennis life is great and the travel is wonderful, but it's pretty, you know, you know, you're pretty focused on yourself and, and it, you know, there, there is, you, you lack some rewards there when you're, and, and I think there's also some pitfalls in just focusing on yourself that I think I was ready for whether it's teaching or giving back or finding a ways to um, work with others um, in a community setting, I think was probably a better fit for me too, personally. I like being around people and that's sort of a natural to me. So I think that was, another piece of that, that the, the sort of the timer, you know, started to ring on the, you know, on the, on my career. So tell us about your third degree, your um, first degree at Harvard, then four <laughs> years on the tour. Talk a little yeah. bit about masters in religion and literature. That's funny. Well, you know, funny. I, I, there was that, there was, it's actually, I think it's in Moby Dick where Melville says that he, he, he talks about his time on the whale ship as his Harvard and his Yale. Um, so I actually love that comment, like, you know, learning by being out there in the world. And uh, uh, so I don't know, that, that, that's where that second degree came from. But uh, yeah, then I went back to grad school where I was, you know, I, I, I thought I might be a teacher and I, I definitely wanted to get away from tennis for a few years. And I did a master's degree and, and I was really interested in literature and the ways that 
stories and uh, tell us a lot about a culture and how you can pass on your values and ethics and morals and the way that, um, you know, it gives us a chance to, you know, excite our sort of moral imagination. And so I, I was interested in, in that and, and exploring different religions as well. Um, so it was a really broad program at Harvard Divinity School that allowed me to, to really sample a whole host of different ideas and, and, and uh, faith systems. And it, it was not a, it's not a, oh, my degree was not a clerical degree. I wasn't going to go into ministry. Um, it was more an educational degree, although, you know, a few of the students were in that pathway. So, yeah, it was just, it was a sort of exploratory time. And I really, you know, it, it was grateful for that and was thinking about what it'd be like to be in the classroom. And that's when Dave sort of knocked on the door and said his, you know, assistant was leaving and wondering if I wanted to, to get into this uh, and, and uh, have that opening. And that was, you know, sort of a turning point for me, but one that I was very glad uh, with my decision to, to join Dave and sort of leave my graduate studies behind and, um, yeah, get get into a different kind of classroom. Because you were working on your PhD even after that, right? Yeah. So I went to BU getting a PhD in religion and literature, and Dave, I, I'd volunteered for Dave uh, before as well, and, and I'd done some, a little bit of teaching. And um, and so I, I sort of you know kept the irons in the fire there with Dave and, and, and coaching. But um, yeah, so that, that then the assistant job opened up, which was paid and and yeah, I jumped at the chance and, um, yeah, that, that, that sort of started, you know, my, my career, you know, whatever, you know, 16, 17 years ago, of college coaching. Yeah. Uh, before we get into college coaching, uh, I read where you were instrumental in a program called back to school where the Harvard coaches go to class with their players. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it was one of those things where, uh, you know, we, I think it was even a conversation with Dave about, you know, sometimes how as college coaches, we get busy, we're recruiting, we're focused on our players and we're not always connected with the academic life cycle of students or connected with their uh, intellectual life. And uh, we started this program where coaches uh, go with students to class and we do it for like a couple of weeks in the winter when, you know, sort of, you know, it's a little gloomy out a little bit in February. And so uh, it's a kind of a fun, fun, uh, uh, exercise that we do. And it's one to say like the students that, Hey, coaches are involved too. And it's also to build that relationship between the ath- athletics and academic side of Harvard. Um, it's been really successful and really fun. And it's, it's, it's still, you know, still going and we're some years off of for COVID, but, um, it's something that, uh, yeah, we're, we're pretty proud of, um, here at Harvard because, you know, you, you want to make sure that you're, you know, as coaches, we're still learners too. And, and, uh, it's not, classroom learning is it, it can be exciting and and it's certainly you know a nice break from our coaching routine too so that's kind of how it started and it's it's, it's still going now let me uh throw a little curveball at you before we start talking about the team being the assistant coach and now the head coach i'm, I'm sure that you'll have no problem with this but a hockey question i tease people yeah. that tease people of I know obviously some of the students I've worked with have gone to Harvard and I said, did you go to the hockey games? And they said, no. I said, well, then your education wasn't worth anything. But <laughs> teasing, but the Moore brothers from Toronto, Mark, yeah. Steve, and Dominic, you must, they, they all played some tennis. Uh, you must know, did you overlap with any of those guys? I, you know, I'm, we've, I've become very close friends with Dom Moore, who, who lives in Boston now, and we've hit 
many, many times. Um, and certainly his brother, Steve, those are the ones I know the best. Um, as I heard the story passed down, I, I think they, they certainly Steve played, you know, sort of our B team or JV team tennis um, when he was not in season with hockey. And Dom did the same his first year. And then the coach told me he couldn't keep playing uh, JV tennis. I, I, that's the way I sort of got passed on. I, we could probably get Dom to tell that story, but he's a tennis uh, nut and he's gotten so good. I mean, you know, we always talk about who is the best non-tennis playing tennis player, you know, someone who, who is success in another area, whether it's an actor or another athlete. I mean, you know, I, I would put Dom up there probably with anybody right now. I mean, I know Steve Nash plays a lot of tennis, but I, I don't think he's as good as Dom or, um, Bodie Miller was a pretty good player. Um, you know, so I, I, Dom has to be one of the best of the, uh, you know, someone who, I mean, he grew up playing tennis, so it's actually not quite the same, but he's a, he's a dual sport athlete. I mean, it's not, John Lucas level, but um, he's pretty darn good. I understand that he's played some of the age group ITFs now, right? Now that he's yeah, playing hockey. Yeah. Yeah. How I and know how I know the Moore brothers is uh, the Richmond Hill Country Club, Richmond Hill, right outside of Toronto. I've gone there for years and helped the tennis teaching. So Robert Steckley is a funny story. Steckley was a very talented young player from Canada. I was working with Steckley and Dominic Moore didn't really play that much, especially in the wintertime, because he's so busy with hockey. And I, I, just, I just yelled, I said, Moore, get over here. And I told Moore, I said, if you quit hockey and I work with you for a month, you will beat this guy. And of course, Steckley at the time was the number one player in Canada in the 18s. But what, um, all, for our listeners, all three brothers yep. uh, were drafted in the NHL. All three brothers went to Harvard. And Harry Neal, who was a great player, then he became a great commentator on TV, said if there's a Hall of Fame for the Moore, bro- Moore brothers, or no, excuse me, if there's a Hall of Fame for the Moore parents, I'll get this right, third time's a charm. If there's a Hall of Fame for tennis parents, the Moores are in. Um, <laughs> with Richard told me that the reason that they were so good is that their mom had some health problems where she even had, had a limp and she would, um, you know, every day, you know, with her limp, going up the flight of stairs, going into the gym, and and uh, but he he speaks so highly of of the of the Moore brothers. Now Dominic was so talented, but he was playing way up in an age group. Richard and I went to watch one time, and so he might have been like fifteen and you know playing or fourteen playing with eighteen year olds or whatever. But he was a healthy scratch. I, I did uh, with Dominic, his first wife Katie, who played soccer at Harvard. You probably know, know that story as well, but. He was traded many times, and it was kind of fun. Where every whatever city that uh, he was traded to, I would be asked if I knew someone who taught tennis in that city. And um, but anyway, yeah, the Moore brothers. Um, your, your your tennis center is right next to the hockey rink, correct? Yeah, well, yeah, you're you're right there, so you don't have to travel very far. I mean, it's an interesting combination. I mean, certainly the movement in hockey and getting a wide base and being a good mover. I mean, it, I just it's got to be one of the best sports for, you know, sort of off-court training. I, I would just cross-training would think hockey would got to be, you know, absolutely near the top. Yeah. Oh, there's so many stories um, with, you know, I guess you just go with Bjorn Borg for one, but um, yeah, you're, you're challenged with your feet, you're challenged with your hands and, and, you know, again, there's th- three types of sports. There's um, non-contact, contact and collision. You know, you, you your reward for getting in the, in the corner first and getting the puck is the car accident. I mean, you're just going to be hit right against the boards. 
Um, and they use that facility for the camp. Uh, plus they have the world team tennis there still or no, no, the world team tennis is sort of moved off. It's actually not in, in new England right now, but, um, you know, it's a, that's, that's past. I mean, it's the hockey rink is really now just focused on hockey, but, um, yeah, those are some good stories. And, and the more brothers, you know, Harvard owes that, yeah, the more parents, uh, a lot. <laughs> so good. Well, do it's me so a favor. Good. Ask Tom, Dominic Moore if who's better tennis player. Dominic or Timo Solani? I guess Timo Solani from Finland is a very good player. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Okay. With um, let's go with uh, starting as an assistant, working for Dave Fish. What a great guy! And you know your progression. You've been there now so many years. Um, you're you're, go, you're going towards five zero pretty soon, right? Yeah, I just passed the five uh, zero mile marker. It's in the rearview mirror now. Oh, really? Young looking guy. Yep. With. Um, <laughs> Being assistant coach, how many years did you do that? And what's it, what was that like? And now being a head coach? I, I mean, it was probably about 11 years with Dave as an assistant. And, you know, it's obviously special to work at the school that you played at and to work for your former coach. And I think that gave us a leg up um, because we, you know, we knew, I knew what, what the student experience was like from, you know, being in their shoes before. And um, I, we're, Dave and I were a good, good partner. Um, you know, Dave really helped me you know, temper my enthusiasm and put it in the right directions and help, um, you know, mentor me uh, in terms of coaching and what that's like. I mean, you, you have to put in the time, you have to do your apprenticeship. And I think what I quickly learned was just being a good player, as you all know, it doesn't mean you're a good coach. And I think that that, I really felt like I spent that first, you know, five to 10 years really learning the game. Yeah. <laughs> In, I mean, there's always a joke, you know, how to get to um, Carnegie Hall, practice, practice, <laughs> practice. How do you get to Harvard? Yeah. Study, study, study. I actually stayed with Dave and his wife, Bonnie, and they seriously, they went to their camp at like 4.30 in the morning. So I, they said, well, you take this car and you can come in at 7.30. And I had to stop at a toll gate and I asked the gentleman, how do you get to Harvard from here? He said, that's easy, just study, study, study. Oh, nice. Um, but I... I read where you, uh, I think a compliment to your students, um, as a student athlete, the, the Navy SEALs of college tennis, that's because they're, they're challenged. Uh, they're not taking too many, uh, gut courses at too many light classes, correct? Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're not, they're, they're certainly not. I mean, it's probably any comparison to the Navy SEALs isn't fair. I mean, they're not, they're not in, in, in going through that comment, but in the sense that they're challenged on a couple of fronts, um, I think that, you know, we've seen people come in from the outside that have been here, just been, uh, you know, just so impressed with the level of, you know, workload and, and what they have to manage here. And, and, you know, that's what one of the things that makes them so capable and, and so successful when they graduate. But, uh, yeah, they, they, they have to work hard and they have to manage their time and, and they're, they leave really confident in their ability to navigate, you know, challenges. And I think, you know, instead of taking things off their plate, you know, Harvard puts them on their plate for them to, to learn, to, to, you know, grow and, and to handle it. And so, yeah, the, the, the students are just phenomenal and just really, I mean, they, and they change so much during four years. I think all college coaches would say that. I mean, the growth from your first year to your senior year is, is a lot, especially for the guys. I think um, it's a lot of growth and, and maturity and, and social awareness and all those things that happen in those four years. And, 
you know, some of the really quiet kids come in and, and have to learn to be leaders and more vocal and they leave as seniors. And, you know, as a coach, it just, you know, gives you a thrill. And then maybe some of your louder mouth kids, you know, learn to tone it down and be more respectful and listen. And, you know, they're all learning lessons. They're all teaching each other. And we're sort of in that laboratory. And it's just, that's what makes, that's what drew me to college tennis. That's why, you know, I, I spent that, you know, in the East now, it's, I don't know, 16, 17 years doing this uh, and loving it. So, um, you know, that was the draw. Um, Matt Gobble, who's his PhD professor at WashU, um, what he's told some of my students over the years is, you know, say, for example, they want to go to medical school, that they should um, really take the year after college and, and just really prepare for the MCATs and such. Um, there are some light majors out there. So when I meet a kid and they tell me they're playing college tennis and they're becoming an engineer, for example, it's like, whoa, yep. I, I don't want to, I don't want to belittle someone who's, you know, in a commu- right. communications major, but I, and I know you downplayed it, but the, the Navy SEALs, uh, I've, I tell kids, uh, you're step off the sidewalk for a minute. And I said, now you're like a Navy SEAL. You're just standing on lunch. All you got to do is dig, <laughs> dig down and, uh, eat the worms and the enzymes, you're, you're, you'll be fine. You'll, you won't die. But um, it is very, very difficult to be a student athlete. I don't know if, if young junior tennis players realize that um, what, you're with your players 20 hours a week. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the NCAA sort of limits, but that's also not including matches. You know, the match times are, you know, factored in a little differently. You're spending, you're spending more than 20 hours a week with – you know, you're especially during the season, you know, just by the, you know, they only count a match as three hours and you, you know, you're there all day. So, you know, um, you're spending more than 20 hours in a week in terms of, uh, your, your time with them. But, you know, in terms of practice season, yeah, that's your, that's your cap there. Um, but you, you, you get to know them pretty well. Well, I, one thing in the Ivies, you can't take a red shirt, a gap year, correct? I mean, you can't be on campus for a semester and, and not be on the team. Right. You, you, you could conceivably take a gap year after high school before college, but you can't take a, a gap year dirt, you know, once you get accepted and then take a year off or a red shirt a year and come to campus and just train. Right. So that, that's a difference uh, of the Ivies. Um, there's not the top talent. I don't see a lot taking a red shirt. It's usually for a more developmental uh, case or someone's, you know, sort of growing and needs a little extra time or might be really young for their age. And we do see some kids taking a gap year to, to offset that. Being young for the age. Uh, I think a Kazatin uh, from, from yeah. Dusseldorf. Uh, how do you pronounce his last name? Soski? Yeah, Zoska. Yeah. Zoska. Yeah. I, I just did, I did a camp with him one summer and uh, what a great kid. But, you know, I was, they were asking about college tennis. And at that time, he was almost finished with high school. And I think he was just 15. Um, yeah. And that made it quite difficult. So when he was on your campus, he was very young, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and some of the rules, and there's now some, some changes, but yes, at the time, you, 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 well, you, that gap year you would be penalized for, um, which, you know, the rule was originally intended so that, you know, you're the 23-year-old European that had been playing futures for five years, you know, couldn't start college as a, as a first year or something. You know, you, 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 you want to level the playing field. And, of course, there were some exceptions that we actually, we saw quite a bit where the people had skipped a grade in third grade or something and didn't know the parents were obviously not aware at the time that then 
you know, when you graduate high school, your clock starts. And even if you're very young for the age, I mean, Constantine might have been 16 you know, or something or, you know, when he started Harvard or barely 17. And so he was he was young. Um, so that's that's something that. Um, uh, yeah, that, that you know, that's that would be a perfect case for a gap year. Here's one thing I want to say that leads into a question and help me with the pronunciation. Henry von Schulenberg. How do you say that? Henry von Schulenberg. Yes. Uh, David Squire sent him to me when I think he was eight years old and he said he'll be able to do 80 double jumps and will beat everybody at your place in mini tennis. It it, it was a hundred percent correct. Um, But then I I worked with him that time he came to uh, Florida. Then I was in Zurich. And again, I didn't coach him, just an elevator ride. Uh, but Squire has a son, Henry. I think the parents should hear that is what he did with his son, Henry Squire, is he, he started inviting Henry von Schulenberg to the yeah, lesson. Von Schulenberg. And yep. my point with that is for parents, I think it's so important to have kids, have friends. And I, this is my question, 100%, it's pretty close to 100% of the people I've worked with played college tennis they look back and they say it was the greatest time in their life. And I think one of the reasons is their teammates become friends. And I think in junior tennis, a lot of times there's just a craziness about competition and uh, they don't have that sense of enjoyment to have a teammate. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there's no question that tennis is, can be a lonely sport. I I do think it's how your coach frames it. I do think that if you have a a camp or a group that you travel with, you, you can sort of, mitigate those you know that that sort of loneliness or isolation or i mean junior tennis is yeah it can be kind of a competitive space and it's you know every it feels like a zero-sum game if you get better then you know you take a spot for me in a college or whatever uh, i mean i still think that um yeah i mean college is just none of that there you've got 12 of your closest friends on the team and, and you're in it together. And there's that camaraderie, you know, we've talked about it. That's what drew me to the, to working it, you know, uh, in college tennis. And it's, yeah, it's electric. It's, you know, it's fun. It's, you know, your matches are like little mini Davis cup matches and, and there's an intensity and an energy that's, um, yeah, really uh, dynamic and yeah, it's a big draw. So I, I certainly think that I could see why, people would feel that way. And, and, you know, it, it, it is a unique stop in your tennis development is, is the time as college tennis players. So yeah, people favor it. And then when it's over, they, you know, it's just, uh, you know, what they wouldn't give to be on a team like that. No, Europe has like club leagues and things like that where you, you get a feel for that too. It's just that once you're out here, um, yeah, we don't quite have that. Um, you know, people play on their league teams. Those are those give you some of those sorts of feelings, but um, it's not a it's not a big club league system like they have in Europe. With um, the progression to the, um, you know, you said you know they come in as a freshman. There's so much change. I think in the high school years, people change so much physically, but yeah, they definitely they definitely grow up. Um, how about leadership and, and captains? How, how how do you work that? I mean, I've heard many times that coaches can pick their captains, but they can't pick their leaders. Well, actually, actually Harvard, you actually, the coaches can't pick their captains. Um, It actually, there's a vote um, by the uh, team and coaches don't vote, Um, which is, I don't know. It's always been a feature of Harvard. I never actually questioned it until I heard that other programs did it differently. Sometimes the coaches can vote and 
some programs, the coaches pick the, picks the captains. Um, yeah, leadership is, you know, something you, you want to start right off the bat. And I think that um, if everyone has a stake, if they take ownership in, in their development and in the team, you know, they're already showing signs of leadership. You know, that's it, 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 this is the, the concept of the renters versus an owner. You know, what is that? The, nobody washes a, a rental car, goes to the car wash in a rental car because, you know, they don't care how it looks. And if you take ownership in something, that's the beginning of people becoming, you know, someone that really takes care of their, their own stuff first and learns to manage themselves and then, you know, can help manage and, and um, you know, support the rest of the team. And, and so there's a progression there. You certainly want, you know, the, the students taking the wheel of, 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 the, of the team and, and getting a chance to, um, you know, put their imprint on it. And so you want to encourage that. I think as coaches, you have to give them the space to be able to say, okay, what do you guys how, how far do you want to go? You know, where, where, where do you want to take this and, and uh, put, put the ball in their court um, for them to, you know, see how far you want to go. And, and, and that's, you know, leadership will, you know, you, you, it takes you, it's little mini conversations. It's, it's, it's peer to peer um, sort of practice in that where you get, you know, pair of the upperclassmen with some of the incoming kids and, that's, you know, leadership and you, you want to provide lots of opportunities for people to practice that. So by the time they're seniors, they're, you know, they, they're more comfortable in that role. So, you know, you've got to find lots of little micro opportunities for them to, to do that. Um, and I think good teams, you know, there's that, there's that sort of process in place so that they can, you know, leave with that sort of experience because that's a great takeaway from, from college tennis. Uh, two Harvard guys, uh, Garrett Doran and Chris, Crystal Schultz, um, they both told me that once you're in, you know, they take they take care of you at Harvard. Um, meaning that, or I guess my question, um, obviously, um, tutorials and you know, you know, support systems. Obviously, you look at Harvard. I would just think you look to your left and you look to your right, and you're you're dealing with being being sur- you're surrounded by smart people. Uh, what type of support system is someone struggling a little bit academically? Well, I mean, I think this has been the biggest change in, in, in not just Harvard, but all, all schools across the country. Now there's just more touch points. There's more support staff. Um, there's more uh, academic resources available. And if you're struggling on other fronts, whether it's mental health or some of your other um, areas, uh, schools are just much more approachable and they're, they're, They've really wised up in how to meet the students in their what they need today. Um, yeah, so we have a whole academic resource center that's free, and it's, you can get peer-to-peer tutoring. You can you can get mentoring or help in the writing center. And most of the time, the, the issue is just making somebody aware of <laughs> where the help is, and, you know, and how to get started with that. Um, or you know, as a student, if they're struggling, you know, you know, that admitting that they're that they're behind and they need some help. Um, but yeah, the resources are endless. Our team does very well academically. We had some absurd GPA last year. Was a team, you know, last spring semester, our team GPA was over a three point eight, which is crazy at Harvard. Um, it's one of the best GPAs of any team, and and in at Harvard, and you know these. So they've done really well. So. Uh, Certainly, they are finding ways to, to, to manage and, and thrive here. Even um, you know, it is a challenge, but um, 
I would say after the first year or two, as you do the dry run and you learn how to, to manage your time and, and figure out what you need to do and, you know, how you need to, you know, position yourself and, and, and your study habits, uh, they, they hit the ground running and do great. I remember on a yearly basis, my late mother would come and visit. I was on a college campus. I was a department head. I was training tennis teachers. And I remember her saying, I was a, I'm the youngest of six, DV. Before you leave here, you have to think twice. You know, being around young people, being around learning, just that university life. Uh, I mean, I think that fits you. Um, could you expand upon that? Well, I mean, in the sense that it's it's a it's a laboratory, it's a place for learners, it's contagious. Um, yeah, certainly. I mean, I love we we I hit or you know, got to know a bunch of the faculty here at Harvard and connecting with them. I mean, I think it's a place of learning, and it's. I think it's addictive. I love being a part of that. I love growing in that way as a coach or even the, the, the contacts with other coaches. We just came from a staff meeting, you know, with the head coaches meeting and, and just hearing the other coaches think through, you know, their programs and what they're doing is, is, you know, just great fun, right? Talking cross sports about what we share in common as coaches. Um, and then, you know, watching students learn there. I mean, it keeps you young. Uh, there's no question that, there's a lot of, you know, you, you, you get a lot of uh, tailwind here uh, because there's the energy of the young students and, and their, you know, passion to, to get good at something. This is not like a spectator school where people just run to their dorm room and play video games. And people have real passions and drive. And to see that all around you, I mean, that's what I think the calling card of Harvard. I mean, I was a student there when Matt Damon was on campus acting in the student plays. And, uh, you know, I was... Uh, playing tennis while one of my closest friends was a jazz musician. I'm a kid from Cleveland. I didn't know anything about jazz and I would go to his concerts and, and he would come to my tennis matches and, you know, now he's traveled the world playing with, you know, Wynton Marsalis, Josh Redmond, he's a famous jazz pianist. And, you know, I was surrounded by people that, you know, had talent, but worked really hard and, and, and were willing to do that. We had a documentary filmmaker with us and, you know, all these different things. And so, you're surrounded by people that want to, you know, get really good at their craft. And yeah, that makes for great conversations in the dining halls and, and all over campus, frankly. So that was really, um, you know, what, what threw me to Harvard and, and what still does. Reminds me of a young guy named Araneo. He used to come to our free clinic on Saturday mornings and his goal, he wanted to be the best flute player in the world. He used to play eight hours a day. I know he, he, uh, he ended up at Harvard. A question I have, uh, years ago, especially the girls, not so much the boys, their junior year, they, the Ivy Leaguers, they take a year abroad. My, my question is that that's gone away, but or perhaps that hasn't totally gone away. But it seemed like years ago, um, you know, the kids would be taking that internship on Wall Street and what have you. But are your players doing that, some of that, or are they, or are they all playing in the summer? Well, it sort of depends on where they are on the team and what what their goals are, right? Um, you know, there, there's certainly, you know, you want to get better. The pathway is pretty clear. You need to, you know, really leverage in the summer to play a lot. Uh, and I think the kids that get good and, you know, move up the lineup do. Um, I also think that, you know, there's time in the summer where you can do short internships or you do something for a couple of weeks or, you know, you get a chance to dip your toe in the waters here. Um, you know, but you know, that as you're getting older and you're getting up there and, and you also want to think about your career and you're not going to play pro tennis, you, you know, you have to be realistic about, you know, finding some experience. So 
you know, it's a juggling act for sure. Um, and there's ways to do that where you can put something on your resume and, and still push your tenants forward. But, um, yeah, I mean, you want to be on the, or the best in the country, you, you, you know, you, you gotta be spending the time on, on court to, to make that happen. Do you have, uh, your history there so long now, have you had many transfer players, transfer students? We've had, we've had two students come in as a transfer, you know, but that's, and that's in 20 years probably. So we, we can, we can take transfers, but it's been, it's been rare. Um, um, yeah, so we, it's not a big part of our, our team. I've been in the business of helping people try to be a college tennis player. I always say, you know, a lot of, a lot of students go and they flunk out and, um, it's sometimes easier to get into, uh, school as a sophomore. There was a young man I worked with who he was not a tennis player. He just was with me to learn how to teach tennis, which is very unusual that a high school student want to learn to teach tennis. And he wanted to get in the Cornell engineering school. And I remember telling him he didn't quite get in. He was a really good student. I said, live at home, go to Rutgers, get a four Oh, and you're going to drink a lot of beer at Cornell. And, and sure enough, a year later he got in, um, Along those lines, I have to throw this out for my son, Connor. We were, we were at Harvard helping Dave and Bonnie with their summer camp staff. And I don't know the name of the building, but it's indoors and there's a track and there's a pole vault pit. Right. It's, it's right there by the tennis courts. And so Connor was helping me with some demos and you know, he flew to Boston with me. Then he was going to go to Europe. So he was 17 or 18. And I'll never forget during part of my lecture, I, you know, I said, you, know, you just have to help me with demos. I'll call you over. So he, he, he took a nap at the pole vault pit. But, but I did tell him, I said, you know, we'll never be, a, we will never got into this place, but we'll, we'll be able to tell people we taught at Harvard. But anyway, long story short is that uh, he transferred from Florida State to uh, Ohio State. This is for the listeners. Um, he had a, a pretty high GPA. And I remember the Cornell coach calling me and his GPA was high enough to, to transfer. I think it is much more difficult to get into a school straight out of high school. If you were to, you know, one, I like this scenario. You can't do it in Ivy league. If they take a semester off and then they go to school and they're on campus where they get used to the rigors of the new academic load and they don't have the pressure of making the lineup. Um, the, uh, but you got to hit the ground running if you're a freshman at, at Harvard. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's the normal path, but yeah, there's different ways to do it. Uh, certainly. Um, yeah, there's, there, there are different pathways there and it depends on, you know, your individual circumstances. How about in the fall when you guys play, uh, you must run into some players from Williams or Middlebury or Tufts in some of the fall tournaments. Um, is, are the top D three guys, I mean, are they competitive with the bottom of your lineup or is it a big difference? I mean, is it just case by case study? The, the division three space is, I mean, we've seen it exploding. I mean, the level has gone up and up and up. Uh, and I, I, I'm, you know, really impressed with that option for, for students. I think it's just, the, the level has only gotten higher. Um, you know, I guess we're, we're right next to Tufts and they got to the final four this past year. And, and uh, yeah, they, their team, I mean, you, you look at their UTR, I mean, you can do the sort of that, power UTR rating of a team and it's not that different than BU's team or BC's team. Um, so th- th- there's definitely a big rise in, in that D3 level. I think it's, it's, it's impressive. And I think it's, it's, uh, you know, th- it's competitive. 
So I, I, that's been a change probably in the past, you know, 10 years. I mean, I think it's really accelerated. Oh, I'm so, so glad you said that. I worked with so many kids. It's, it's like if they can't play D1, they don't want to play. And I go, what are you talking about? Don't you love tennis? Um, we Eric Buterak's name came up on one of our podcasts. And I said, well, we'd love to have Eric on. But let's go a step further and talk to Bud. So Bud Schultz is scheduled to be on. But yeah. Oh, that's great. But D, I know, and he's he's a Boston guy. You must know him well. But with uh, D3, uh, yeah, I'm, just, I'm just so glad you, you said that because I just hear D1, D1, D1. And, you know, four years of college tennis goes pretty quick and it's a sport for a lifetime. Braden used to say, you know, if you're 15 years old, you get 75 years to work on the 90 and over division. And uh, right. Yeah. I think that's a little... Well, I mean, even that, I mean, it's just, you know, you, you, you can win a national championship. I mean, you know, they got to the final four. Like, I don't care what division you're in. I mean, that's good level and it's competitive and you're on a great team and it's it's a, it's a great experience. Um, and I, I think people do discount it. I think you're right. And they think, oh, you know, this is the only level. But, I mean, Bud Schultz and Eric Buderak are, you know, probably the two of the best D3 players of all time. Um you know, both doing well on the pro circuit. Um, and uh, those are great stories. And, you know, people think, oh, well, you know, this, this, and that. And, and I, I just think, uh, you know, I, you can interview Eric too, but I mean, you know, being, being a, you know, leader on a team, you know, uh, you know, versus riding a bench on a, on a, on a really strong D one team. I mean, those are very different college experiences and people shouldn't, uh, you know, people should take that seriously uh, because, you know, there's, there's a lure of confidence you get by playing on the top of the lineup and being a, you know, leader of a program um, that carries with you for life. So I, I wouldn't discount it. No, again, appreciate you saying that. Like Braden used to say, go where you wanted. Um, you know, and right. I think also, too, that's where your fall tournaments or the summer is that, you know, you don't quite make the grade to play D1 at age 18. Um, again, uh, for the listeners, Bud Schultz got to be 39 in the world, and he, he played limited tennis growing up, but never played a junior tournament. Um, amazing story. Yeah, he played basketball in college as well. I mean, yeah, it is, it is unbelievable. And I, I just think, um, yeah, it's not, it, I, they, they should just go and see for themselves the level because it, it's strong. Uh, let's do this. What just general advice, and then some. I know you're well read in books. That, I mean, oh, I, know, I know you have a long list, but maybe you just give a couple books before the book. So, uh, what general advice? I mean, um, well, actually, I'll put it together. But I, I, I recommend one book, uh, and all of our incoming students, you know, have to read it, and it's called The Art of Learning, and it's by Josh Waitskin. And long story short, but Josh was the the sort of the model or you know the, for the document not documentary i guess the the movie um searching for bobby fisher you remember that oh great, movie, great, Steve? Oh, great movie yeah i recommend people so, watch so it josh sure. was was a basically became the number one best international chess player under 21 in the world and for various reasons um you know dad and the movie and fame and he, he sort of kind of moved away from chess and then started a getting into a martial arts and then became world champion in that. Um, he's sort of a master learner. Um, there are a lot of very good takeaways. I think it works in any sport. Um, so first book, I always recommend reading. If you want to get into coaching or you want to be a good student or you want to get better, whatever you're doing, read the art of learning. I think more than any book, it's done 
a, a wonderful job of breaking down the learning process of what it means to learn a craft and, and the different components of that. Uh, Cause he's been successful in a couple sports. He draws, he draws some great anecdotes that you can use, um, you know, and, 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 and sort of that progression and he sort of maps it out there beautifully. I, I just think it's just a, it's a great book um, for anyone uh, who wants to get mastery over a skill. And, you, and I, I say the author's name again, art of learning. The art of learning is the title of the book and the author is Josh Waitskin. Okay. Uh, and you, you know, this again, it was the kid from uh, searching for Bobby Fisher, uh, which for your younger listeners, they won't have seen it, but it's, that's also maybe a movie recommendation. It's oh, great for, sure. for tennis parents too. All tennis parents should see that too. Um, in this academic setting years ago for training tennis teachers, we would uh, recommend movies to watch on the, you know, or sign a movie and have a discussion. Uh, here's another Harvard guy. How about Timothy Galloway, Inner Tennis? Best selling book of well, all good, time. What do you think of that book? Great, great call. Um, yeah, we have another part of the Harvard Tennis uh, family, and, and that book is great. I mean, it really started that whole mental game approach. I mean, you know, Dr. Learn, all the people that came after him, everyone was a debt of gratitude towards Tim Galway in that book. Um, and it just sort of, you know, helps open your eyes to that other battle going on inside the match, which is, you know, between the ears and how you develop a good strategy between the points and how you navigate your coaching voice and, you know, how you, you know, track yourself through tennis. I think it's a great starting place for anybody, um, you know, wanting to explore that. Cause I think, yeah, it, it gives a good framework. I should, be able, to, I should be able to tell you the coach's name, Brian, he was in the NFL for some time. And I can't remember, maybe it was because the players make a little bit of money. Maybe it was a thousand dollars, but at any time during the summer training camp preseason, if they weren't carrying Galloway's book, they'd be fined a thousand dollars. They had to have the book everywhere they went. You know, and he would, you know, say, open it up to page such and such and the doer and the teller and, you know, the teller's ego and the ego's got to shut up and, you know, comes back to the Bill Belichick, just that one sign, just do your job. Uh, how about a couple other books? Maybe one or two? I, know I mean, give us a hundred. No, I mean, those would be the ones, I mean, you know, that I think for, for tennis players and in sports that I, I, I would definitely point to, um, you know, there's everybody. I, I think it's very good to read autobiographies or biographies of former players. And, 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 you know, if you're interested in tennis and you're a young person, read, read biographies and autobiographies. I think it's uh, very motivating. I did read a bunch as a kid and that was really even sports biographies. I mean, they're just a great way for someone to digest, um, you know, you know, how people got successful and hearing about their life stories and how they started out just like they were as kids. And I, I, I think that's great. I mean, you know, just love reading about whether it's stories of Arthur Ashe or, uh, you know, you know, other tennis players or other, other great athletes. I think it's, uh, you know, it should be a must on the, on the bedside table. Uh, just this morning, lots of rain yesterday. Uh, so I sent these players a text and it just said, uh, you know, practice was moved from 6.45 to 9.45, and I just said school, sleep, uh, gym, because we have some gyms they can use. And what I did is I have just started it, the, uh, the biography on uh, Federer called Master. Um, just, just a tidbit, you know, I never knew until this morning that Lynette Federer had a one-handed backhand. Um, 
all those little things add up. Uh, maybe that helped Roger. Who knows? There's lots of things that helped Roger. But um, yep. Andrew, what about general advice? Uh, you know, again, we I say a lot of people listening to our podcast. You know, parents driving to practice with kids who wants to, you know wants to be college bound. Um, I sometimes just say, what's advice for the player, the parent, and the coach? If you were just to sum that up with a few key points. I mean, this the, the it's, you you just got to keep your eye on the ball and keep your nose in the book. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it is about getting better, um, and investing in, in that process. Um, you know, brick by brick, you sort of build it up and you stack one good day on top of another. It, it, it's, you know, you have to have a vision, you have to have a plan. You want to develop with your coaches for your future and what that could look like. You want to have some benchmarks and you want to have sort of a pathway, but you also have to be willing to, you know, let, you know, Find a coach you trust and then let them help lead the way because they'll have had experience in this. I think it is really hard for parents that didn't grow up in tennis or, I mean, I think it's hard for parents, even if they did play tennis, <laughs> how to do this process and, and, and trust it. But um, if the students and the young people can make it their own journey and you're just sort of supporting that, that's the ideal situation. You know, if you feel like you're dragging your kid to a practice, that's, that's, usually a, a sign that they might want some time off or it's not quite theirs yet. Um, so, um, you know, I, I think those are some touch points there, but, uh, you know, obviously the, the real work is hopefully finding a great mentor and coach who's, 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 you know, can clearly articulate what they need to improve on and, 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 and be a good mentor with their a good disposition. So uh, I think that's where the, probably a lot of the parenting work should go into. It's one of the words from my mother, disposition. I needed to improve my disposition. I, I, I'm going to write. I'm going to write this down. Uh, I, I do give credit where credit's due, but your your eyes on the ball and your nose in the book. That's good. Uh, yeah. I'm working, I, you know, year in and year out with so many kids that are smarter than I am, which is not difficult. But I, I guess SAT scores, and I've got one kid. I go, I, you're getting a 1600, and. You know, I think just because there's aptitude, sometimes there's there's so much repetition, it becomes redundant. You're just in meetings and going over the same thing, the same principles. And these highly intelligent kids, their emotional quotient, you know, I do the old Welby Van Horn thing when you know, I take the racket out of there and I go, right now you're a smart kid. Put the racket back in there and I go, right now you're not so smart. <laughs> but, with, um, but, but with that, um, to get excited about your teammates to get excited about helping the person next to you. I think, I mean, tennis yeah. is a sport where, you know, you become a little bit self-centered. It's, you know, the, yeah. the junior song for us is I have the kids just go, I, me, I, me. I said, no, sing it fast. I, me, I, me, I, me. Um, but with that, um, you know, so we have a young player today who's teaching a charting class and it's a, it's a, it's a video of him playing as well. But it, it just seems to me that um, nowadays, you know, because the kids are just, inundated with all these videos and all these clips they can look at um that's a little bit more difficult you know when i was a kid it was exciting to see yourself on video now it's like no big deal everybody's got a video in their pocket a video camera because of their phone um but there's some opportunities there too and i I mean and i think that you know learning by watching whether it's somebody else or yourself is just i mean it's a you know great opportunity and hopefully you know, you can mimic it a little bit and, you know, 
I, I think, you know, I remember watching matches and trying to go out there and do it myself, you know, the next day or doing it against the backboard, uh, you know, imagining playing someone, somebody or playing in certain styles. I think those are, those are great opportunities for people. I think, uh, you know, that's, as you know, I mean, you, you've done that for, for years in, in your program. I feel one last thought, you know, it's, I think parents, especially, but players as well as, a very successful college program and a recruit comes on campus and the recruits really good. And the players want that recruit to come. And, and, and if you think about it, it's like, well, maybe I'm six in the lineup and, you know, we're only graduating one senior and they bring in these two recruits. I, I might be a senior, not make the lineup. But I, I think that's something that the, the junior tennis player should realize is that it's so competitive that even when kids are, you know, struggling to be on the college tennis team, a recruit comes on campus and they're really successful programs. You're, you're inviting people to come in who could take your spot. Could you right. comment on that a little bit? Well, I mean, I think that, yeah, you, you have to learn to be selfless. You have to want your team to be strong. And I think, you know, you, you, I mean, that's, that you're right. I mean, you're, you're exactly right about that. And it, it, it that's what being on a team is like, and you want the best players around you. You know, you know, because Golden State Warriors wanted KD on their team, you know, at the time, and and that made everybody better. Um, and basketball is a little different because you can get more people in. You're right, playing time, though. You know, those practices become really good, and and it can raise everybody's level. I think in the end, um, but you're right. If someone was a senior, <laughs> bring a kid on, who then you know made it difficult for them to get the lineup. I mean, talk about selflessness or team focused, uh, team oriented, you know, that's, that's impressive. Andrew, I could ask you questions all day long, but here's my last one. So you spent a significant part of your youth in Cleveland and now so many years in Boston. Yep. Are you a Cleveland sports fan or a Boston sports fan? Okay. Great question here. And, uh, I, 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 uh, I've been in Boston now, if you add them all up the years I was here at Harvard too, as an undergrad, I mean, it's been almost 30 years. So at this point, it's really hard not to be in this environment, especially coming from Cleveland, which is like a, the unfortunately you know a little bit of a wasteland in terms of success, and then to come to Boston and then watch you know the Patriots win and then watch the Red Sox win and then watch the Bruins win and then watch the Celtics win. So you know I'd never seen a championship uh, in Cleveland uh, until LeBron did it and 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 had suffered through some of those really just devastating losses, whether it's, you know, Jordan over Elo and the shot uh, to take out the Cavs, or uh, I love those Cavs teams, or the Browns, you know, losing twice to the Broncos or whatever, you know, Brian Seitz throwing the interception against the the Raiders. So I think Cleveland sports history is definitely with a bunch of, you know, tough losses. and, And that always sticks with me. I still have a Browns jersey in my, you know, here, but, um, I, I, I don't I never found got connected with the Celtics so I, I still root for the Cavs um, uh, and uh, I, I now watch both Patriots and the Browns uh, some um, and uh, you know probably you know it's hard not to be a Pat fan in New England and now we're getting a little bit of humble pie which is you know probably much deserved. You know I grew up uh, not so far away from Syracuse and was always intrigued by. Uh, Brown, J- Jimmy Brown, or no, what was the name of the great runner, running back? Jim Brown. Jim Brown, not Jimmy Brown. Might, might hit me well, and also Michael Paul Brown, who was the, the coach of the team, 
um, you know, back in the day. Um, yeah, we've had a great history, and and uh, I, I, you know, Cleveland's special, and you know, you grow up there. It's just it's it's hard to. I mean, I can't watch all the games because you don't always have the games here on TV. But um, I would say I'm more a New England fan, but. Um, you know, I still, anytime I can try to tune in and watch the, the, the teams. Um, I would, know. I would, lo- I'd love to see the Browns win. Just not, it's like, come on guys, let's, let's let, let Cleveland win again. They did win way, way, way back when, but the one we time won a I, lot. right. Yeah. And then Art Modell fired, uh, Paul Brown. That was his first, first coaching move. So that was, <laughs> but they, before, before it was the NFL championships, you know, it was, it was Paul Brown, uh, and them winning. That was really, um, you know, our star team. Well, I've only been fortunate enough to be in Cleveland once. And when I was there, uh, people were taking down their framed photos of uh, LeBron because he had left Cleveland. A lot of the kids were really upset that he had left. <laughs> right. You know, he came back and rescued us and brought us a title. So I mean, yeah. I'm a big LeBron fan and very grateful for him for for doing that for, for our city. So that was a great moment. But uh, Cleveland and Boston, yes, it's so much success in Boston. Bobby Orr, Larry Bird. I still love, I love to watch. I'm not, a, I don't really watch basketball, but I watch Larry Bird clips. I think all the junior tennis players should watch Larry Bird clips. It seemed like he was the slowest and couldn't jump, but he was just so amazing. Yeah. That but, was before I got to Boston. So I, I actually did not, was not at that time, you know, the Boston fan. But um, yeah, the great sporting history. Yeah. But no, you've made so many valuable points. Uh, we like to think that, you know, everything we're doing with free tennis education is people have a tennis treasure test, chest and they can add golden nuggets. But uh, no, uh, thank you so much. Why don't you give us a closing comment? And we'll say goodbye, but really appreciate you being on. Uh, well, thank you, Steve. I'm so glad to be a part of the conversation and all that you do for you know tennis, our junior tennis, about tennis development, um, you know, you know, taking the lessons from Vic Braden and all the other mentors that you've had, I'm trying to do the same with my mentors and sort of pass it on to the next generation. Um, certainly science-based learning. Um, you know, we, we, we have to, you know, you have to study the geometry of the court and understand some of the physics here of, of, of stroke production. Um, you know, those are things that, uh, yeah, certainly now with video and things instead of, you know, having everyone can have access to it now. So there's, there's, not, there's not as many excuses for not having good technique. And you've been a you know pioneer in that and pushing that. And I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's certainly the, that base of the pyramid in getting people started and on a good foundation is just everything. And, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be part of the podcast and, uh, Another time we'll talk some Bali's. We'll, we'll talk about Oh, yeah, the, yeah. The, just the just Bali touch. I mean, well, let's do that. I mean, you probably <laughs> too long. I mean, you want to just touch upon it for a second or let, let's have another podcast? Your choice. Well, I mean, I, I would just, I, you know, certainly the Bali's is, 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 is a, it, it, there is a resurgence in the sense I think everyone is seeing it, certainly on the pro level, even in college, how important the ability to volley is, not only for your doubles point, but how many opportunities there are now to come forward and finish at the net, whether it's an occasional certain volley, whether it's an approach and volley. Um, you know, it's a separator. We see how good, I think Federer obviously had it even as a young player, but how Nodal and, and Djokovic developed just fantastic volleys. Uh, and they did not come with that on tour. And how now, you know, if they're playing somebody standing back at the fence to return, they're serving and volleying. You know, if, you know, 
they'll, they'll do whatever needed and they have the toolkit to be able to do that. And I think, um, you know, some of us old certain volunteers do feel like it's like a, like a lost art a little bit, like, uh, like a knuckleball pitcher. Um, but certainly some of the challenges I think about good volleying today is certainly, you know, these small grips, um, you know, back in our day, Steve, I played with a four and five eights grip as a teenager. And I mean, you know, my dad played with a five grip. I mean, you know, they're, they're, you don't even make a racket with a five grip anymore. And that, you know, the physics of a grip, but the fatter the grip, the more stable the racket head is, the harder it is to, to, to you know, to, to, to manipulate it. Um, of course, now players like Nadal play with a quarter grip, which allows the racket head to be moved and, and, and flexed, and you can use your wrist and really put extra sauce on the ball, which is really fun with people with these, these strings. But, um, uh, you know, there, 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 there's an ability to do different things that we, we don't have. Um, uh, you, know, you know, you didn't have that option with the 5 inch grip, and I, and I do recognize you know, that, that even Nadal keeps his wrist pretty still through contact. But the, the, the concept is that players come to the net with the, the history they've learned from the baseline, which is, you know, tends to be a, a, a lot of wrist flexion or release of the wrist. And at the net, you want that stability of the wrist. And that that's something that, um, you know, if you played with a 5 8 grip and an old wood racket, um, you sort of, you know, continental grips, it sort of comes with the program. Uh, and so, you didn't have to do a lot of teaching of the volley because it was, you know, the backhand volley was like a shorter slice and people learned it. Um, some of it just by the mechanics of the racket and the grips. And, and now, um, you know, we're missing that. So how to teach the volleys is something that, you know, I made a little crusade of mine certainly on our team. And that wrist stability is, is something that, you know, a lot of people don't have um, these days or haven't experienced or even it's often the, it's uncomfortable position for them. And so, you know, that's some, something that, um, you know, I, I, I'm cognizant of, and I think is, you know, we're, 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 you know, that, that the lost art of the volley there is, is, you know, some of the grips and the grip changes there have, have contributed to that. And, and, uh, you know, I don't know if you stuck somebody with a big four and five eighths grip, uh, you know, I think they would be able to keep that racket head stable. It's just easier to do that um, because of the physics of the racket instead of it, the racket head being easier to manipulate. Now it reminds me of a tidbit. Um, Leonard Berglund years ago, coaching Borg, he made him go to a, a bigger grip so he could stabilize the racket head for volleying. Um, the crusade we have is we'd like to have players, I should say coaches have players play one bounce doubles, 10, 15 minutes a day. In other words, when we we also do it, where the no poaching on the return, and everybody has to come to the net. Um, yeah. You know, another shout out to Dave Fish, a lifelong learner. I think long before Craig O'Shaughnessy was really known within the tennis industry, I remember Dave telling me about what O'Shaughnessy was doing with taking information from Warren Pretorius, the analytics, and then writing yeah. short stories. And I think also too the geometry of the court. And the stats, um, let alone the mechanics. Um, you know, even like, say, go back to Carlos Goffey, we had so many people share this, this points to reinforce, you know, the volley is um, a green light point. You know, your head 40 love, you know, the young 12 and under kid, why don't you hit a, a body serve that'll come back straight and, and play a volley? But kids go by, kids will go five years 
it's really sad now they'll play one up one back doubles and they'll play singles five years of tournament tennis and they haven't gone to the net and then they get to college and you're like okay now we have to make up for lost time and now if you want to play doubles you gotta have to learn how to volley so I mean, I think also the, the decline of the wall has hurt because we used to just volley against the wall a lot and you develop wrist strength and you, you know, you don't have enough time to take a swing. You know, you have to keep it really simple and compact um, just because of the nature of the ball comes back so quickly from the wall. So I mean, all of those are factors. Oh yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that's uh hopefully that art, you know, it's just, there's nothing like it. I mean, of course I'm biased, but there's nothing like seeing a good, struck volley and, and, and what that does. And, and even, you know, it, 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 think about, you know, how much easier it is to finish a point with the volley right on top of the net than it is to try to, you know, thread the needle from the baseline on a winner. Uh, and, and so, you know, there, it's, it's, it's a, there's a real advantage from, from that positioning. And you know, like you always talk about in terms of your angles and, and what's possible. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, you know, something I like to pass along. I like to think that our team, our players learn and leave uh, much better volleyers than they started. Oh, that's great. Uh, no, we'll have to have you on for round two and just let's just talk volleys. That would be a great podcast. Yeah. With, uh, great. But Andrew, this has been a lot of fun. I know a lot of people appreciate uh, getting to know you better and, and all the nuggets, all the uh, advice that you've shared. Well, Steve, I really appreciate it. Uh, you know, happy holidays to you and, uh, and, and the rest of the family down there. And uh, we'll, uh, yeah, we'll stay in touch. All right. All the best, Andrew. Thanks again. Take care. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye. All right, listeners, podcast, I think 125. Uh, Andrew, thank, great, great guy. That was, that was fun. Um, I don't want to take any more of your time, but uh, I know some people are putting this up to one point. Two five on their their gadgets to listen to a little bit faster, but there's just so much, and I do know that we have uh, some people that have listened to every podcast, so we're we'll have to to put that quiz together. Um, anyway, that was great, so much, especially for the um, the people that have, have an interest in college tennis. But Andrew Roof, thank you very much, listeners. Thank you. Adios, amigos. Mm-hmm.